I'd like to begin by asking you some questions. First question, why did God create us? Have you ever thought about this? Now kids, do you know why God made you? In the first service, someone yelled out yes from the back. I thought about bringing them up forward to share that answer. But kids, do you know? Do you know why God made you? Now to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Adam and Eve, why did God create them? And why are there 8 billion people on this planet Earth? Not why that many, but why are there people at all? Well, here's my outline for this Resurrection Sunday. Three questions. Number one, why did God create us? Number two, why did Christ come into the world? And three, why does the resurrection matter? So three questions. We'll take them one at a time. We're looking at Romans chapter 3. So we've been in a series in Romans. If you're new to us, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll catch you up here over the next uh, few weeks. But let me just look at again just the context. So we had verses 21 through 31 just read for us. These beautiful verses of how God saves his people. Let me just start back in verse 21. So Romans 3. And I want to read through our verse because what we're looking at today is just eight words. We're looking at the second half of verse 24. Let me read starting in verse 21 again here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So this is good news. Those, those first two words, but now, maybe you remember that from a sermon past, because the chapter 1 at the end and all of chapter 2 and then leading up in chapter 3, we see condemnation. We see sinful humanity. We see bad news after bad news after bad news. And then we get to verse 21, but now. And there's good news that the righteousness of God has been shown. It has come. It has been manifested apart from the law. And this is good. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And that all means all, everyone. It also says uh, there's no distinction. Then verse 23, though, the bad news, though, yes, it's available to all, but all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And then now here's our verse. It's a little more bad news, but verse 24 I think one of the most beautiful verses in all of the scriptures. So last time we saw the first part, and are justified, declared, which means declared righteous, by his grace as a gift. This salvation, this justification, it was given freely. It's, it was free as a gift, but then look at how and by what means this gift came. And that's what we're looking at today, is that second part of verse 24. So the first part, and are justified by his grace as a gift. And now here's our eight words. Through whom, or through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what we're looking at today. That phrase, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now I know going that slowly through the book of Romans means that at this pace, we'll probably finish the book in the year 2056. I'm aware of that. We're going to speed things up again and take things a bit 
faster in the future. But verse 24b, you could say, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The centerpiece of the sermon is the second question, redemption. That comes in question two, the answer of what is that? We'll see that. The first question sets up the context, and the third question shows us why Easter, why the resurrection matters. So let's begin with question number one. Number one, why did God create us? Have you ever wondered this? Was this because God was lonely? Did God create us and the animals of the world so he could have some friends? Was it because he was lacking something? Well, first, we need to completely rule this out. God is eternal. He's God, and he's always been God, and he's fully God, and he's fully sufficient on his own. Genesis 1, the first words of the Bible, in the beginning was God. God was there. Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is a dwelling place. Job 36, the numbers of his years are unsearchable. Psalm 100, his loving kindness is everlasting. Eternity past to eternity future. Psalm 102, you, O Lord, abide forever. Psalm 112, his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 145 and Daniel 4, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Lamentations 5, you, O Lord, rule forever. Isaiah 40, Habakkuk 2, Psalm 90, Proverbs 8, he's the everlasting God. He was there before the mountains were born. He was there before all of creation. He was there before earth and the world were made from everlasting to everlasting. He was there and he was God. Isaiah 45, he saves with an everlasting salvation. Isaiah 51 and 61, he's the giver of everlasting joy. And it'll be put upon our heads. John 5, John 10, Romans 6, he's the giver of eternal life. Hebrews 5, he's the source of eternal salvation. Ephesians, God chose us before the very foundation of the world was made. 2 Peter 1, his kingdom is eternal. And then at the very end, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, speaking of Jesus, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first, he is the last, the beginning and the end. God is and always will be God. And as God, he has no needs. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't deficient. In fact, one of the most amazing truths of Christianity is that God has always existed in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been singing this just in the, our very last song. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, living in perfect community and communion with one another, a better fellowship than any created being could have offered God. There's no deficiency in God that brought about creation. In fact, the Bible is full of incredible descriptions of the perfections and the characteristics of God. These have often been called the attributes of God. There are many. Here I just share a few of them with you. God is infinite. Colossians 1, he's before all things and in him he holds all things together. Romans 11, God is all wise. Paul marvels at the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Psalm 147, great is our Lord and abundant in power. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. 
God is immutable. It means he doesn't change. Malachi 4, I, the Lord, do not change. He's the same God yesterday as he is today and as he will be tomorrow and for all eternity. Isaiah 46, God is omniscient. That means God is all-knowing. Job 36, God is perfect in his knowledge. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. Psalm 139, there's no place you can flee from his presence. You might remember or have heard the story of Jonah, this prophet who runs away from God. God tells him to go to one place, and he gets on a ship, and he goes to another place. And we see that God is there. God sees him, and God is with him. Jeremiah 22, no one can hide from God. God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, he's a faithful God, keeping his covenant to a thousand generations. That means always promises made by God are promises kept by God. God is good. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is perfectly just. Deuteronomy 32, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. Psalm 145, God is gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God is holy. Revelation 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In 1 John 4, God is not only loving, but God is love. This is astonishing. This is staggering. God is love himself. He is love, and he loves his people with a deep, personal love. And since nothing existed apart from God, and God was self-sufficient in every way, and God exhibits these wonderful and beautiful attributes, God's motive in creation could then only be grounded in himself, in his own internal desire. We might be tempted to answer the question of why God created us by saying, well, because he loves us. But that can't be the reason. Jonathan Edwards in his classic work, A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World, says some helpful comments on this. Now, love for us sounds like a nice motive for creation, but it assumes that we were always here to love. But we weren't. Edwards says we had to be thought up and created by God. So the real question is, why were we thought up by God? Why were we thought up and created by God? Well, there has to be a motivation grounded in his nature, not some circumstance and not some consequence and certainly not some consequence of creation. Nothing on its own would have moved God to create. There was some absolute goal which was important to God before creation. Jonathan Edwards explains, God has no needs. He didn't need to create out of a need. Instead, creation must have come because it accomplishes something God values. He's created the universe to expand and to increase himself. So there's a logic here. This is why God values himself more than anything else. If God didn't value himself as highest, his own judgment would cease to be perfect and would be called into question. So God must act with the highest regard for himself. That's the most logical and loving thing to do. God created the world to expand and to multiply himself, to bring himself glory. Now in summary uh, on this, author John Piper says the glory of God is 
The holiness of God made manifest, made shown, revealed. Our very existence grows out of his desire to give his holiness, to give his excellence a greater audience. God's valuing himself is the most loving thing he can do for creation. If you love something, you hope that others can share it with you, be it a nice meal or a nice view, a sunset, a book, an experience. In this case, God shares himself. We might think this makes God sound petty. Well, Ben Stevens, commenting on Jonathan Edwards' work, asks these two questions. First, what in all the world would you substitute for God which would be a more worthy object? That is, Stevens continues, if knowing God is too petty of an aim for God to have set for creation, what would be less petty? Well, friends, for God to be God, the most God-like thing that he could do is to multiply the adoration and praise of himself. God delights in the manifestation of his character because he alone is perfect. Well, after creating, the most loving thing God could do is to share his love with creation, to glorify himself. My seminary professor, Dr. John Hanna, writes, God created this natural world so that it would reflect his beauty upon himself. The world shows his symmetry and beauty, but even more in his creation of humans, his image bearers. He made us so we could join all nature in a chorus of adulation and praise. Oh, friends, the world's purpose is to glorify God. But even more so, it's, it's our purpose as humans, as men and women, as boys and girls, as young and as the elderly. Genesis 1.27 says that God specifically made us in his image. From Adam and Eve to all of us today, we were made in the very image of God. In some unique and amazing way, humans are like a mirror. We're to be like a mirror reflecting the relational qualities of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We show parts of the character of God by the way we act, by what we say, by our friendships, by our forgiveness, by our relating with one another and relating with Him. We were made for glory, for God's glory. Isaiah 43, speaking for God, says this very thing. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Paul says in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. One scholar puts it this way, when God sees himself in us, he's glorified because he simply sees himself. Why did God create us? Well, it's to glorify Him. Well, how do we do this? Well, a few ways. How about looking at the most famous sermon of all time, the longest sermon we have in scriptures of Jesus Himself, the Sermon on the Mount. That first beginning part, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed 
are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you? That's not true. And they utter it falsely. What do you do? Well, you glorify God and you persevere. We also glorify God by depending on Him in prayer. Prayer is one of the most God-honoring, God-glorifying things we can do because in our prayers, what we're saying to God and we're saying to the world is we can't do it. That we're dependent upon God for everything. That's why we praise, because we need Him to move in and through our lives. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We give Him honor for anything good that happens in our lives. So when something good happens, we, we, we give God the glory. We live holy lives. We run from sin. We run from temptation. We love our family and friends. And like Christ, we love even our enemies. We glorify God by telling others about his greatness. We lay aside our sinful anger, our lusts of the flesh. We give generously. We cast our sinful and even just normal anxieties on Jesus. We refrain from gossip. We assume the best about each other. And we build our lives upon the rock of Christ Jesus. We seek foremost in our lives to know God and his word, to walk with him, to be obedient in all of his ways. We walk like him. He was the model and the pattern. And we walk after him to orient our entire lives around him. Friends, this is what we were made for. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what we were made for, and yet there's a huge problem. And that's the problem that we've been talking about in Romans, end of chapter 1, chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, and the one we saw last time in Romans when we looked at verse 23. There's a huge problem. Yes, why did God create us to glorify him, but we've messed this up. And that's the second question. Why did Jesus Christ come to the earth 2,000 years ago? Number two, why did Christ come into the world? This is really the heart of our message. It's the heart of chapter 3, second half of verse 24. We know that mankind was created to be a mirror for God. Our lives were designed to reflect God. But there's a problem that started with the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And even if you're new to church or this is your first Christian gathering ever, you've probably heard the names Adam and Eve in some context. They were the first two humans. And yet instead of mirroring God's greatness, they rebelled. They rejected God's ways for their own. There was one restriction given to them, to not eat of the fruit of this one tree. And yet they ate of the fruit. They listened to the deception of the devil, and they thought that they knew better than God did. It wasn't simply just eating a piece of fruit. It wasn't a bad piece of fruit per se. It was their utter rebellion. It was that they said, we want to be God instead of you. We want to make up our own rules. We want to make up our own laws. We want to live our lives according to our own ways and not God's. It was utter rebellion, and there lies the very beginning of sin, and it's a sinful lineage that all that come after Adam and Eve have inherited. We all follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand this. You and I confirm this sinfulness each and every day, in our grudges, in our hostility towards others, our stinginess and greed, 
our lustful looks, prideful comments, those little white lies that we convince ourselves aren't really lies, but they are. We've distorted the image of God we've been given and deviated from the reason we were created to glorify God. Since God is perfect, now we have a big problem, don't we? How can a perfect God coexist with a sinful people? Or maybe even better said, how can a sinful people be in the presence of a holy and perfect God? And the answer is on our own, we cannot. For God to be perfectly holy and for God to be perfectly just, sin could not be overlooked. And yet, if it was, God wouldn't be perfect. He would cease to be just if he allowed us in, our, in his presence. Something had to be done. Punishment and judgment had to take place. The easiest thing to do would be just to let us die and die an eternal death and suffer forever. The punishment would fit the crime because even one sin, not just our sins, but even one sin against the holy God deserves an everlasting punishment. Romans 6 tells us the wages of our sin is death. So now to our question, why did Christ Jesus come into the world? Well, really, for the same reason he created the world, to show off his glory in a most magnificent way. It's the end for which God created the world, to reflect himself. By coming to earth, Jesus would reflect the glory of the triune God by taking our punishment upon himself, by taking our place so that we wouldn't endure everlasting judgment. That's why we call Good Friday good. It's what Alan preached on two days ago, if you were with us in Garhud, as he walked through the horrible and yet glorious chapter 53 of Isaiah. As we looked at this description of the suffering servant, the one who was to come hundreds of years later, Jesus, the one who suffered and died in our place. Creation happened, sin happened, but now a Savior has come. And you could really summarize the entire message of the Bible in one word. And it's the one central from our text in Romans chapter 3. It's the word redemption. The Bible begins, as one scholar says, with the creation of a habitat for humanity there in the garden. The first Two chapters of the Bible describe God with his creation, with Adam and Eve in a garden. And then the Bible ends in Revelation 21 and 22 in a celestial city where we have the men and women, children from all times who believe in Jesus, all gathered around the throne worshiping God together. We go from a garden to a city. What's in between in the scriptures? Well, first, in Genesis 3, we see the fall of man. We see Adam and Eve's sin. And then in verse 15, we see this first glimpse of the good news that a Savior would come and would crush and defeat Satan. But, and from that point on, Genesis 3:15, all the way through Revelation 20, we see redemption. We see the story of redemption come out. We see the story of redemption from that part in Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation 20. It's a love story. It's a gathering of a people to enjoy him and bring him everlasting praise. It's to reverse the curse. It's as scholar G.K. Beale has said, it's a redemptive reversal. God will get his glory. 
Well, how is God going to get his glory? Redemption. How can a sinful man be restored to a holy and just God? Redemption. How can we live in his presence? Redemption. How can we live in heaven with God for all eternity? Redemption. Now let me just read those four questions again. But this time, you, the congregation, I want you to say the word redemption in answer to my questions, okay? Got it, kids? Do you, do you have it? I ask the question, and you answer it with the word redemption. Here we go. How is God going to get his glory? How can sinful man be restored to a holy and just God? How can we live in his presence? How can we live in heaven with God for all eternity? Redemption. Yes, friends, redemption. I hope that word is cemented in your mind and cemented in your heart today. Redemption, redemption, redemption. Our sin had messed everything up. Every sin is a deviation from God's divine purpose in making you. But now God is building a community outside the garden and preparing us one day for that celestial city. God is reversing the effects of Adam's sin and he's doing it through redemption. So what is redemption anyway? What is this word we've been shouting out? Well, the word translated redemption is found ten times in the New Testament in Luke, Romans, 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in the book of Hebrews. Redemption is an idea that comes from the marketplace. In particular, it refers to the freeing of slaves in the Jewish and Greco-Roman world. This takes us back to Israel in the Old Testament. It wasn't that difficult to find yourself enslaved. There were no helpful services for the unemployed. Pretty soon, if you were impoverished, if you had no family to help you, you could find yourself on the brink of starvation or even imprisoned. And so to avoid prison and starvation, you could become enslaved to someone for a time. If you got into a debt you couldn't pay, this was one way of preserving your life. At the same time, God's law had a provision of a kinsman redeemer. Leviticus 25 shows the freedom from enslavement you'd get when someone paid for you. It was a ransom payment to free you. Well, how does this relate to us? Well, apart from God, we are all enslaved to our sin with no way of purchasing ourselves out of that imprisonment or bondage. The law of God demands payment in order for us to be considered righteous for God's justice to be executed. God himself making this payment for us is redemption. We see this idea corporately in the Old Testament of Israel. We see it individually of the Jews. Corporately, this idea of a ransom payment of redemption. We see it in God redeeming Israel from slavery. We see it in the Exodus. We see God delivering his people from the Egyptians. It was a grand rescue of from slavery, maybe you know or, or have heard or remember the story of where God actually miraculously parted the Red Sea and delivered his people from the bondage of slavery. In a real sense, as one author writes, in freeing slaves, Jesus is the new exodus. Well, individually, we also see a provision in the law. If you committed a crime resulting in a death sentence, there were allowances in certain cases 
where if you could agree with the victim's family for a ransom price, you could pay the price and spare your life. The idea of redemption refers to the freeing from this kind of slavery, which in our case is spiritual death. We needed someone who'd pay the debt for us, and Jesus does just that. He pays the debt himself, and only God in the flesh could do so. But the price of our debt was his death. That's the ransom payment. The price of our debt is Christ's death. This payment wasn't cash, but a cross. And it wasn't saving of our physical lives. Oh no, it was much more than that. This was a deliverance from sin's power and deliverance from an eternal spiritual death. Being redeemed means giving us everlasting life, everlasting freedom. It means to be free, freed from the bondage of sin and to the world forever and ever and ever. Now over a hundred years ago, in the year 1915, Dr. B.B. Warfield, a great theologian, preached a sermon at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he preached on two words, Redeemer and Redemption. And in his address to the students and faculty of Princeton, he preached these words. There is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. True, other titles are more often on our lips, Lord, Savior, others, but Redeemer is more intimate and therefore more precious. Warfield continued, It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from Jesus, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure this salvation for us. Our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. Oh, friends, this is magnificent. This is the very reason we named this church Redeemer Church of Dubai. It's not because of our association with other churches with that name, and it's not because we have anything against other names, but we chose this name specifically. We chose this name. We wanted a name that would easily point people to the gospel and even pique people's interest and show a wonderful word picture, a name that wouldn't be offensive, but a name that would give an open avenue to explain Jesus' death and resurrection. And so I'm often asked, uh, what, what, what church are you a part of? Or when I say I'm a part of Redeemer Church, I normally get asked, what does that mean? Or what kind of church is it? To that I answer, I have an inroad right to the gospel, and I tell them who a rede our Redeemer is, a natural connection to the good news. Now in that sermon on the Redeemer Warfield talked about the high cost of redemption being Christ's life. When we think Redeemer, that's what we think of, this high cost of Jesus giving up his very life. In a real sense, this redemption is both free and it is expensive. Alan mentioned this at Redeemer's Good Friday service just two days ago. We talked about salvation being a free gift. I read it just a few moments ago, the first half of Romans chapter 3, verse 24, that it's by grace we've been given this gift. The gifts are free. Gifts are, are free. This is free, but at the same time, it's expensive. 
Yes, it is free, but it wasn't free for everyone. Now, our family, we were at Dubai Mall this past week for a family celebration. If you've been to the mall, you know that many of the stores there are really, really fancy and very, very expensive. Places most of us don't shop or even have walked into because the jewelry and the handbags are more than our annual salaries, more than we could afford. Well, I confess one time I was very curious as I walked by a fancy clothing store and I walked in and I wanted to look at the price tags. And I wanted to do it really fast before, uh, as I saw the corner of my eye, uh, one of the, uh, the shopkeepers was running, was not running, but walking quickly towards me. I'm not sure if I didn't dress to impress that day, but before they could get to me, I looked at some of the shirts. I saw shirts for 3,000 dirhams. I saw a suit for 20,000 dirhams. I got out of there as fast as I could. But what if that employee had caught me and had come up to me and took that suit off the rack and gave it to me as a gift. Well, would it be free? Well, it certainly would be free for me. I'd be able to walk out with a brand new suit, an improvement from what I'm wearing today. But it wouldn't be free for that employee or for that store owner. Someone would have to pay for it. Now, this is not a perfect analogy. Actually, it's an imperfect one, and I'll get to that in a moment. But the point I'm making is that someone had to pay for our salvation. It's free for us, but expensive for someone else. Alan quoted in the sermon on Friday saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, that's true. We here, we have the most amazing gift, a free gift which came at great cost to someone. And in that case, in this case, it was a bit more like that hypothetical Dubai Mall situation than a birthday party. So consider a birthday party where you might bring a gift for a friend. This is someone you love. This is someone you appreciate. This is someone you're friends with and you bring them a gift because you like them and they're nice to you and you have a relationship. At the Dubai Mall, this employee giving me a suit, he just did it either simply out of kindness or indifference to me. They didn't even know me. But friends, both of those illustrations fall short. Because redemption's not like a birthday gift that your friend gives you. It's also not like a giveaway from an employee at the Dubai Mall who's, who's indifferent to you. No, in this case, in the case of redemption, it's from Jesus. Jesus is the ransom payment. And yet Jesus is the very one that we have sinned against. The scriptures say that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That Christ died for us while we were his enemies. Our lives didn't commend themselves to God. We didn't cry out to God in love. No, instead our hearts actually spewed hatred toward God. We didn't deserve a gift. Not only did we do nothing to deserve it, we actually did the opposite. It wasn't a gift that came to us because we loved first. It wasn't a gift that came to us out of indifference or winning some lucky lottery or being at the right place at the right time. No, this gift was given to us while we were enemies to the gift giver. Salvation is free for us, expensive to God. We did nothing to deserve it. We've offended him. We've deserved death and judgment. No, salvation is free, but it's not something we could afford or contribute towards this can only be paid as our verse says through 
There's these eight words again. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The preposition through shows the means of how redemption was accomplished. Through the redemption or how our salvation was accomplished. It was through redemption being paid for by a ransom payment. What's the means? It's the second part of our verse. That is in Christ Jesus. He purchased our salvation. So why did Christ come into the world? We're to glorify God through redemption, to be the ransom payment himself. John Murray, in his classic work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, writes, The ransom utterances of our Lord show beyond question that he interpreted the purpose of his coming into the world in terms of substitutionary ransom, and that this ransom was nothing less than the giving of his life. The point, even Jesus tells us this is why he came. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A friend, we were created to bring God glory, but in our sin we distorted that purpose. And so Christ, God in the flesh, came to us, came to this world to be our redeemer. And ultimately, He purchased our freedom from the shackles of sin there on that cross. He died the death we deserve, taking the penalty, taking all that we owed for our sin upon himself, our shame, the wrath of God, our sin. His payment was his very blood, the creator dying at the hands of creation, giving up his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is an astounding truth. Jesus did die. And Jesus was put in a tomb. But as we've already been singing, his story doesn't end there. Our story doesn't end there. For this is Resurrection Sunday, after all. And that brings us to our third and final question. Why does the resurrection matter? After all that we've just said, why does the resurrection matter? Well, simply put, if Jesus didn't die, or Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the Bible can't be trusted. If Jesus didn't, die, didn't rise, from the death, rise from his death, then our faith would be in vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything he said and everything he did would be deemed False. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the Bible can't be trusted. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Jesus was a liar. But he did. He did. He did rise. And we often talk about Jesus' death on the cross. Some of us even wear cross-shaped necklaces. Maybe you have crosses on your wall or on a embroidered on a pillow case. These are reminders to us of the death of Christ. But I've never seen an, uh, an empty grave as a piece of jewelry. I've never seen an empty grave hanging on a wall. I'm not even sure what that would look like in terms of a painting or decoration. But friends, we must not forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ means our faith is not in vain. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a matter of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's another gospel summary. We've sinned against God. Christ 
died for our sins. He was buried. And think about what that means. The fact that he was buried means that he died. He was a dead man. He died. He was put into a tomb. And he was raised. And the third day he was raised. The Bible speaks of this first in Genesis 3.15. We see the little taste that one day a, a Savior would come who would crush and defeat Satan. But then we see throughout the scriptures even the apostle Peter quoting and applying Psalm 16 to the raising of Jesus. Jesus himself, he tells the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious teachers of his day, that Jonah's three nights in the belly of a whale foreshadowed his death and resurrection. Jesus speaks of this multiple times in Luke 13, Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Mark chapter 8, that he will not only die, but that he will rise. We could go on and on. Paul preached the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection in accordance with the scriptures. What the scriptures said would happen regarding the resurrection actually happened. That tomb was heavily guarded. It's a big stone. Men whose lives depended on guarding the body waited and lurked outside on guard. There were many witnesses who witnessed the risen Christ, hundreds of them. In fact, the first witnesses were women. Doesn't sound startling to us, but back 2,000 years ago, a, a, a woman's uh, comments were not accepted in the court of law. They were not able to testify. And so if anybody would, would try to make up this story, they would certainly leave those details out. No, the tomb was empty. Most of all, lives were changed. Peter, who had just denied Jesus three times, now moments later is bold and is giving his life up for Christ. The disciples and countless others. We see Stephen, a deacon, serving physically, being the first martyr for preaching the good news of Jesus. No, that empty tomb emboldened a great multitude to preach Christ crucified. The resurrection matters because it means God is trustworthy. The resurrection matters because it means everything in the Bible is true and will come true. God promised the Savior, and he came, and he rose from the dead. He died, and he rose. This means, friends, Redeemer Church, Crossroads Church, this means that we can look into the future with hope and a confidence that God will continue to usher his promises and usher his people into eternity. The resurrection of Christ's body means, too, that on that day, on that last day, we, too, shall rise. The redemption of our bodies, the resurrection to immortality. No tears. No trials. No temptations. No tribulations. Everlasting joy. Forever and ever and ever. Because of the resurrection, we can be certain of the end. The end for which God created the world will happen. God will get his glory and we will enjoy him forever. Oh, friends, if you're new to us, maybe you've come on this Christian holiday. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, it was God's very plan for you to be here in this room today. Maybe a co-worker brought you here. Maybe uh, one of uh, your children's 
plays on a sports team with another child and, and you came from an invitation from them. Maybe you just typed in Dubai and church into your, your computer screen and you Googled yourself here today. Maybe you thought the food out there was the hotel breakfast and you're staying in the hotel and so you wandered in and saw that there was a church service and your church crashing here today. That's great. Whatever means God brought you here, we are thrilled that you are here and we pray that you would come back. Children, normally you're in a classroom, but you're here today. That was God's plan. It was God's plan for you to hear this. Maybe God is speaking directly to you today. Nobody is born a Christian. All of us have to individually recognize our sin, repent of it, and believe in Jesus to save ourselves. Kids, on up to the oldest person in the room, each of us has to turn to Christ. So my prayer for all of us is that we would follow Christ. To all, you're hearing this message today because God loves you. So stop worrying about whether you've done enough for salvation, whether you've been good enough, because you can never be good enough. Stop trusting in your own good deeds to save you. No need to pray another Hail Mary prayer or to do some kind of religious ritual. You can't earn favor from God by fasting or by praying or by serving. You can't contribute to your salvation. And when we try to do that, we're on a never-ending hamster wheel. We're spinning and spinning and spinning, running and running and running, but not actually getting anywhere. The job will never be finished. Now, reminded again of our trip to Dubai Mall last week. We sat and ate dinner there by the fountains and were able to look at the Burj Khalifa. At one point before sundown, we looked and we saw a man about a third way up the Burj Khalifa held up by some cables washing the windows. Because even the world's tallest building needs clean windows and the way they do is they start up at the top and they make their way down towards the bottom it takes a long time being such a tall building but what happens after you're done with 200 plus floors and find yourself at the bottom of the building well the windows at the top of the building are dirty already again and you have to go back to the top and it's this endless cycle of trying to clean the windows. Friends, if you trust in your works or you trust in your religious deeds or you trust in your rituals to save yourself or if you wait to clean yourself up before coming to Christ, you'll be caught in that endless cycle of the hamster wheel or that endless cycle of washing the windows on the Burj Khalifa. You'll never get there. You'll never be clean enough. My friends, come to Christ. This Resurrection Sunday, come to Christ. Jesus has already paid the price of your sins in full. He was the ransom payment. He is the Redeemer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Father, we thank you for a time when we can pause and be reinvigorated by the truth that we have a Redeemer, and his name is Jesus. And this Redeemer paid the cost of our freedom, a cost too high for any one of us to bear, for any of us to bear, or even to contribute to. We were your enemies. Enemies made friends. Father, we praise you for the shed blood of Christ. We praise you for his resurrection from the dead. And we look forward to that day. Oh, Father, we look forward to that day when we will rise 
be with you forever and ever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.